morning to Southfield. I'm glad you're here today. What a difference a week makes in the weather, doesn't it? 
It's crazy all the stuff that we've experienced this week and kind of packed into just a few days. Um, but that's kind of what Illinois in winter is like, so we'll take it. And the sun is just beautiful this morning. Well, since the beginning of the year, um, we've started this series. It's uh, What's Your Story? And we've been watching videos. We've been hearing um, just stories. We heard the story in the Bible about the blind man um, whom Jesus healed. And we're just hearing other people's stories. And Dennis has challenged us to think on our own stories and how, you know, what, what is it about it that God or what, what part of our story does God want to use? Does he intend for us to draw others close to him? And um, so as we're singing this next song, as we transition into this, I just want you to specifically think about the chains that God has broken in your life, the chains that he has removed from your life. soon 
dissolve like snow. The sun forbear to shine. But God who called me here below will be forever mine. Will be Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace that is amazing, Lord. God, we thank you for your love, Father, that is huge and unconditional. God, we just thank you for the chains that you've broken in our lives. We thank you for the stories that you've given us, Lord, to be able to draw others closer to you and to show them and to show ourselves, Lord, your grace and your love and your mercy. We thank you for all of it. In your name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. The sun is shining. The temperature has gone up a little bit. It's nice to get out of the igloo and see other humans again. Good to see you today. Glad you came. You came in. You received a folder. Your folder today as well as last week featured the the group options that are coming up this semester. So make sure you take the time to look over those. Get home today and get registered for a group. You also have a card on the inside that we'd like you to go ahead and give your name. And one of the things we're asking at this time of year, we've been just sending a lot of emails lately about groups and about the weather and all those sorts of things. So if you've not been receiving church emails, make sure you go ahead and put your current address on there and indicate that that you're wanting to receive them. So last Sunday, as this uh, polar vortex was bearing down on us, kind of coming in, coming into the area, I kidded about my my rugged buffalo uh, uh, childhood and what it was like to be in in real weather. Well, as that as that storm whipped us around, obviously, like all storms do, it moved out east, and as it moved east, uh, it did a number on my hometown. I took some time looking at some images on local paper and whatever, and one of them I found was this one. Kind of hard to see just from the standpoint of all the white. What's going on there is a lot of ice. Uh, We live on the the side of the Niagara River. Where I live, there was an island in the uh, Grand Island is in the river. And so the, the Niagara River divides into two branches, and each branch and the west branch. And uh, the, the ice was so bad during this particular storm that it did something I never remember happening in my childhood. And that was an ice jam that went the entire length of the eastern side of the Niagara River. So they were having flooding. They were having all kinds of problems. But but. I'm not here to give you a weather report. What I wanted to show you was this spot. Because I looked at this picture and I go, I know that spot. I've stood at that spot. I've stood at that spot for hours and hours and hours. That was my favorite fishing spot growing up. This is Fisherman's Park in North Tonawanda. And I used to stand right there at the corner and lob my line out there. And I caught the coolest stuff. That's the spot I caught my first rainbow trout. Right there. Now, let me tell you the rest of the story. Uh, they were trying to stock the river, so it was a fingerling. It was, it was about this big. But nonetheless, I caught my first rainbow trout right there. I also saw my, the first sea monster of my life right there. Now, I'm not kidding. I'm standing there, uh, you know, with my line waiting for something to happen. And this thing comes out of the water and down in the water and up and down and up and down to the point that I could literally see three 
humps out of the water doing and i wasn't on anything i promise it's just like i'm like i don't know what it was i my guess is it was probably some kind of an eel that lives there in those waters but i'm i'm watching this thing and just kind of have this moment of are you kidding me this is a this is just a huge spot in my childhood i spent hours and hours rode my bike a couple of hours just to stand and fish there what i didn't know until i grew up is that um Oh, I didn't catch a lot of fish, and I didn't catch a lot of fish because I was really bad at fishing. I mean, I I had a horrible method going on. The way I was taught to fish was get as big a hook as you can, get a worm and a monster sinker, and throw that puppy as deep as you can. Just whip it. Zoom. Go go for the deep water. So I spent a lot of time staring at my line in the water. And occasionally, very occasionally, something would come along and grab it. But here you had all these beautiful areas right along the shore that if I had had the right lure, boom, and just tapped it in there... I'd have been getting fish left and right, and instead, I did a lot of staring at the Niagara River, which wasn't a bad place to be, but, you know, that's kind of the way fishing worked for me. So while I was on the Internet just kind of searching home, I decided to go back and look at some images from that blizzard in 1977. I wish we had all the cell phones then that we do now and all the cameras going because the pictures weren't, they weren't great images and there were some great things to capture. Like this guy standing next to the lines of a power pole. The snow was that deep. Or these kids standing literally in the middle of an intersection. This is not Photoshop, folks. This is, this is real life right here. They're standing in the middle of an intersection, touching the streetlight there in that intersection. In case you're doubting, let me just show you some of the images of what it was like to clear out. You see that one in the lower left corner there. That house was almost completely drifted over by the snow that came down. One of the things I didn't know about the blizzard, I I always thought we had just this monster dumping of snow, and it really wasn't that. That year, Lake Erie froze over earlier than ever. It froze over on December 14th. And between December and January, there was a lot of snow that fell. And when the blizzard came, all the snow that was on the lake blew onto us. So all of a sudden, we had all this snow on top of the foot that fell. We had all the snow that came off of the lake. But I actually remember some of those spots. There was, a, there was a place on the way to church. These people had a drift. It had to have been 12 feet high. And they decided to snow plow it out. So you could walk through this canyon of snow. There it was, just absolutely massive. So we got a lot of snow. But i got to tell you the truth. Our area, my area, North Tonawanda, didn't get as much as some of the when they talk buffalo snow, it didn't always happen to us. You see, this is uh, an image of where I grew up. You see the little Google dot there? That's North Tonawanda. Now, if you have a normal storm coming in, the lake effect storms that you hear about all the time, feeling a little bit like Tom Skilling's right about now. You'd have you'd have that wind coming across the lake, and it and it dumps onto the land, just dumps onto the land. So so Lake Erie. All that southern tier of New York would get dumped on. Or, or you always hear about Watertown and whatever up there coming off of Lake Ontario. And they get feet and feet and feet of snow. Do you see where North Tonawanda is located? Well, what's just to the other side of North Tonawanda? Canada. Land. So back in the day, long before the Internet, in the morning we'd listen to the radio to find out whether or not we were going to school. We'd turn on WBEN. 
And we'd turn it on. And I'm telling you what, there would be school closing after school closing after school closing. And you wait, you get down to the ends, North Tonawanda, skip. They'd just go. Why? Because we had nothing. But just a half hour south of us, they would have two feet of snow. It was crazy. In fact, I saw a prediction of what was supposed to happen with this most recent storm. Get this. Just south of Buffalo, they were talking about 30 to 40 inches of snow. Now, let me just give you an arrow to locate North Tonawanda again. See it right there? What does it say just above it? Zero to two. This was the story of my life. It drove me crazy. So as a little kid, this is what I did because this is what little kids do. I prayed. God, please help me to catch a fish. God, please bring snow to us here in lowly little North Tonawanda. Oh, that snow's down there. Bring it. I'm not kidding. Blizzard of 77, distinct memory. I'm standing at my bedroom window. Blue sky above us. I can see this, this cloud line to the south. And I'm just praying, God, I'll be a missionary. I'll be a pastor. I'll do anything. Bring it, bring it, bring it. Which explains why I'm standing here today. Because it's the one time that he listened when it came to snow. And he allowed that snow to come up and hit us as well. But, you know, here's, here's the serious side of this. So as I'm a kid, little kid, and I understand that God exists, and I understand that prayer is important, well, the things that were important in my life were catching fish, getting snow, and the Buffalo Bills. And so I'd pray for those three things. God, help me to catch a fish. Zing, big old sinker, big old hook, big old worm. Nothing. I'd, I'd stare at the snow down to the south. God, send the snow away. He listened to me once on that. Every other time, sorry, not going to do it. And the Buffalo Bills, I will just leave that one alone. Every time I'd pray for these things, nothing would happen. And so as a kid, I start forming these thoughts. God doesn't listen to me. He just doesn't listen to me. I pray. He doesn't listen. God doesn't care. This is important to me, and he's not letting it happen. Something's wrong. Something's not working. And he even came to the point that I started wondering what was wrong with me. Maybe I'm cursed. Maybe God doesn't love me. I know you're kind of going, man, this kid, he needed a counselor. He needed something. This is what people do. They start taking the circumstances of their life, and they start doing the math. They start thinking, isn't this the way it should work? Now, here's what I really needed. I needed someone in my life, a wise spiritual person who would let me talk long enough to get this junk out of my head so that they could say, Dennis, here's what you need to understand. God doesn't help really bad fishermen. You need to learn how to fish. And if you want lots of snow, you need to convince your parents to move about 45 minutes south, and it'll happen all the time. And as for the Buffalo Bills, switch teams. That's what they, and I did. It just took till 50. But anyway, you can pray and pray and pray and pray. But if you're doing the wrong thing, if you're doing the wrong way, if you kind of got a messed up method, that has nothing to do with the presence or absence of God in our lives. We're just deciding to follow the wrong instructions and to take the wrong direction. So we've been talking about stories this month and how our stories 
can be effective and how we can use our stories to help other people. And sometimes it is important for us to use our story to help someone else to understand a spiritual principle. So whether it's the way God has worked in the entirety of our lives or just an event in our lives, we're able to take that story and draw out spiritual principles from that story so that they can kind of flesh and blood see a verse in action. But there's another aspect of stories that's important. Not just learning how to tell your story well, but learning how to listen well to the story of another person. A person may be conveying their story. I don't know that anybody really would have listened to me as a little kid. But if they'd have listened to me, they'd have heard a little kid saying, God doesn't love me, it never snows. To which I would hope somebody in my life would have said, "Um, it doesn't work that way. We need spiritual friends. We need someone along the way that can take the facts of our life and say, that may be the way you see it. That may be the way you understand it. But here's the truth. Here's the truth of the way God works. So we saw this story last week where the disciples and Jesus are walking along the road and they see a blind man there. And and as they look at the blind man, uh, the disciples turn to Jesus and say, who sinned here? I got that mixed up, sorry. Who sinned? Oh, I, you know, I did this first service. Forget that. Let's just go back here because I like this slide. Yeah, that's a good one. Okay. <laughs> the disciples say, who sinned here? Who did the wrong thing that this guy is blind? And Jesus, Jesus turns to the disciples and says, this has nothing to do with sin. This has to do with the fact that God wants to display his power in this man's life. You see, you had two different people offering interpretations on what was going on in this man's life. And that's the responsibility that we have sometimes. That we're there listening to someone else's story, and we can either throw our perspective on it, which may be skewed like the disciples. Well, he sinned, that's why he's blind. Or it may be more like Christ, where we're actually able to understand the principles of Scripture and say to somebody, that happened so the power of God could be seen in your life. That happened for a reason beyond the things that are taking place in your mind. You see, what Jesus wants us to do is to listen to another person's story, to listen very carefully, to hear the details, and then he wants us to combine that with what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3 where he says, always be prepared to answer everyone who asks to give them the reason for the hope that is in you and do it with gentleness and respect. God wants us to be prepared as we're listening to another person's story. He wants us to be prepared so that as we're listening, we're able to say, that may be the way you understand it, but this is what the Bible says. That may be the way you understand it, but here's the reality of the presence of God in your circumstances, even though you may not think that's what's happening right now. So the last few weeks, we've been, uh, we've been looking at some people's stories. We've been using a site called I Am Second, that we have celebrities, athletes, uh, people who tell their story of the way God has intersected with the circumstances of their life. And they've crafted them well. They've crafted them beautifully. But the truth is, you don't always have to have a story on a Christian website where a person is giving an overt testimony in order to hear about the power and presence of God in somebody's life. 
In fact, just the opposite. Sometimes it can be a story that doesn't mention God at all. And God uses those stories as well to draw out the reality of his presence and his power in someone else's existence. So we're going to watch another story this morning. This is a story of a man who spent the first 23 years of his life in a concentration camp. And part of the reason I chose this story is because I'm fairly confident that that has not been the experience of everyone and anyone in this room. Sometimes when we choose a story, it may be something you've gone through. And so your view may already be formed. It may already be a little bit skewed. This is something that none of us have experienced, but we will all acknowledge from the standpoint of human experience, it's devastating. It's difficult. And what I want you to do is imagine yourself being a friend to this man. You've actually been given the privilege of a relationship with this man. And he's telling you the details of his story. And I want to challenge you to listen with ears that are thinking the verse in 1 Peter 3. I need to be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within me. How would you help this man to understand that God was present with him in the prison camp? How would, how would you explain to him that, yes, even though your circumstances were harsh, there is a God of love who knew about your existence the entire time? Because you see, this extreme example is what we're going to use as we start thinking about the stories that people are going to share of their life. Because the fact is, there are going to be people who are going to share their story with you. And as you listen to the circumstances, they sound very difficult. They sound very hard. And you're going to be coming back to them and saying, here's how Jesus intersects with your circumstances. And sometimes as we do that, the person looks at you kind of like, really? You really believe that stuff? And what we need to challenge ourselves with is, do we really believe that stuff? Are we able to look at someone who's been through something this harsh and this severe and still say, yes, there's a loving God in heaven who wants to intersect with the circumstances of your existence? So let's take the time to look at this man's story. Tonight, we're going to tell you about a place so brutal and horrific, it's hard to believe it actually exists. It is, by all accounts, a modern-day concentration camp, a secret prison hidden in the mountains 50 miles from North Korea's capital, Pyongyang. It's called Camp 14, and according to human rights groups, it's part of the largest network of political prisons in the world today. Some 150,000 people are believed to be doing hard labor on the brink of starvation in these hidden gulags. But it's not just those who have been accused of political crimes. It's their entire families, grandparents, parents, and children, a practice called three generations of punishment. Very little was known about Camp 14 until a young man showed up in South Korea with an extraordinary tale to tell. His name is Shin Dong-yuk, and he said he'd not only escaped from Camp 14, but he was born there. He's believed to be the only person born and raised in the camps who's ever escaped and lived to tell about it. The story will continue in a moment. Did anybody ever explain to you why you were in a camp? No, never. 
Because I was born there, I just thought those people who carry guns were born to carry guns, and prisoners like me were born as prisoners. Did you know America existed? Not at all. Did you know that the world was round? I had no idea if it was round or square. Camp 14 was all that Shin Dong-hyuk says he knew for the first 23 years of his life. These satellite images are the only glimpse outsiders have ever gotten of the place. 15,000 people are believed to be imprisoned here, forced to live and work in this bleak collection of houses, factories, fields and mines surrounded by an electrified fence. Growing up, did you ever think about escaping? That never crossed my mind. It never crossed your mind? No, never. What I thought was that the society outside the camp would be similar to that inside the camp. You, you thought everybody lived in a prison camp like this? Yes. Shin told us that this is the house where he was born. His mother and father were prisoners whose marriage, if you could call it that, was arranged by the guards as a reward for hard work. Did they live together? Did they see each other every day? No, you can't live together. My mother and my father were separated, and only when they worked hard could they be together. Did they love each other? I don't know. In my eyes, we were not a family. We were just prisoners. How do you mean? You wear what you're given, you eat what you're given, and you only do what you're told to do. So there's nothing that the parents can do for you, and there's nothing that the children can do for their parents. This may, this may be a very dumb question, but did you even know what love was when you were, for the first 23 years of your life? I still don't know what that means. Love may have been absent, but fear was not. In this building, a school of sorts, Shin says he watched his teacher beat a little girl to death for hoarding a few kernels of corn, a violation of prison rules which he and the other students were required to learn by heart. If you escape, you would be shot. If you try to escape or plan to escape, you would be shot. Even if you did not report someone who was trying to escape, you would be shot. The shootings took place in this field, he says. The other prisoners were required to watch. As frightening as the executions were, Shin considered them a break from the monotony of hard labor and constant hunger. The prisoners were fed the same thin gruel of cornmeal and cabbage day in and day out. They were so hungry, Shin says, they ate rats and insects to survive. So for 23 years, you were always hungry? Yes, of course. We were always hungry. And the guards always told us, through hunger, you will repent. What Shin and his family were repenting for probably dates back to the Korean War, when two of his uncles reportedly defected to the South. Shin believes that's why his father and grandfather were sent to Camp 14 and why he was supposed to live there until he died. North Korea's first dictator, Kim Il-sung, instituted this practice of three generations of punishment back in the 1950s. The idea is to eliminate this lineage, uh, to eliminate the family, uh, on the theory that if the grandfather was a counter-revolutionary, the father and the grandsons would be opposed to the regime as well. David Hawke is a human rights investigator who's interviewed dozens of former prisoners and guards from the six political prison camps operating in North Korea today. The largest number of 
people in the prison camps are those who are the children or grandchildren of people considered to be wrongdoers or wrong thinkers. I've never heard of anything like that. It's unique in the 20th or 21st century. Mao didn't do it. Stalin didn't do it. Uh, Hitler, of course, tried to exterminate entire families. But in the post-World War II world, uh, it's only Korea that had this practice. North Korea denies it has any political prisons, but refuses to allow outside observers to inspect Camp 14 and other sites. There's no way to verify all the details of Shin's story. Do you believe his story? Oh, sure. His story is consistent with the testimony of, of other prisoners uh, in every respect. There's also physical evidence he carries around with him to this day. The tip of his finger is missing. He says it was chopped off as punishment when he accidentally broke a machine in a prison factory. He also has serious scars on his back, stomach, and ankles, which he was willing to show us, but embarrassed to show on camera. He says he received those wounds here in an underground torture center. He was tortured because his mother and older brother were accused of trying to escape. He was just 13 years old at the time. Did they think that you were involved in the escape? I'm sure they did. How did they torture you? They hung me by the ankles and they tortured me with fire. And from the scars that I have, the wounds on my body, I think they couldn't have done more to me. Shin says he tried to convince his interrogators he wasn't part of the escape plot. He didn't know if they believed him until one day when they took him to that field used for executions. When I went to the public execution site, I thought that I might be killed. I was brought to the very front. That's where I saw my mother and my brother being dragged out. And that's when I knew that it wasn't me. How, how did they kill your mother? They hung her and they shot my brother. He speaks of it still without visible emotion and admits he felt no sadness watching his mother and brother die. He thought they got what they deserved. They had, after all, broken the prison rules. He believed the rules of the camp like gospel. Blaine Hardin is a veteran foreign correspondent who first reported Shin's story in the Washington Post and later wrote a book about his life. He had no compass by which to judge his behavior. He had a compass. But the compass were the rules of the camp, the only compass he had. And it was only when he was 23, when he met somebody from the outside, that that started to change. When he met Park? When he met Park. Park was a new prisoner Shin says he met while working in Camp 14's textile factory. Unlike Shin, Park had seen the outside world. He'd lived in Pyongyang and traveled in China. And he began to tell Shin what life was like on the other side of the fence. I paid most attention to what kind of food he ate outside the camp. What kind of food had he eaten? Oh, a lot of different things. Broiled chicken, barbecue pig. The most important thing was the thought that even a prisoner like me could eat chicken and pork if I were able to escape the barbed wires. I've heard people define freedom in many ways. I've never heard someone define it as broiled chicken. I still think of freedom in that way. Really? That's what freedom means to you? People can eat what they want. It could be the greatest gift from God. You were ready to die 
just to get a good meal. Yes. He got his chance in January 2005 when he says he and Park were gathering firewood in this remote area near the electrified fence. As the sun began to set, they decided to make a run for it. And as they ran towards the fence, Shin slipped in the snow. It was a snowy uh, ridge, fell on his face. Park got to the fence first and thrust his body between the first and second strand and pulled down that bottom wire and was immediately electrocuted. How did you get past him? I just crawled over his back. So you climbed, you literally climbed over him? Yeah. He was a fugitive now in rural North Korea, on the run in one of the poorest, most repressive countries in the world. But that's not how it seemed to him. What, what did the outside world look like? It was like heaven. People were laughing and talking as they wanted. They were wearing what they wanted. It was very shocking. How did you manage to get out of North Korea? I was just trying to get away from the camp, and I ended up going north. And on the northern side, people talked a lot about China. Did you know where China was? No, not at all. It just happened that the way I was going was toward the border. With amazing luck and cunning, Shin managed to steal and bribe his way across the border and quietly work his way through China, where he would have been sent back if he was caught. In Shanghai, he snuck into the South Korean consulate and was granted asylum. In 2006, he arrived in South Korea with not a friend in the world. He was so overwhelmed by culture shock and post-traumatic stress, he had to be hospitalized. More than seven years later, it's remarkable how far Shin's come. He's 30 now, has made friends and built a new life for himself in Seoul, South Korea. But old demons from Camp 14 are never far behind. And Shin now admits there was something he was hiding. Two years ago, he finally confessed to author Blaine Hardin. When he first told me about the execution of his mother and brother, he didn't say that he had turned them in. You reported your mother and your brother? Yes. What did you hope to get out of reporting your mother and your brother? Ah, uh, more... Being full for the first time. More food? Yes. But the biggest reason was I was supposed to report it. Why was Shin tortured after ratting out his mother and brother? The guard who he ratted out to did not tell his superiors that he got the information from Shin. So the guard basically was trying to claim credit? Yes. It was only after seeing what family life was like outside Camp 14 that Shin says he started to feel guilt about what he'd done to his own mother and brother. My mother and brother, if I could meet them through a time machine, I would like to go back and apologize. By telling this story, I think I can compensate, kind of repent for what I did. Repentance has taken Shin all over the world. He speaks at human rights rallies, meets with U.S. congressmen, and is telling his story to us in part because he's frustrated by how much attention the press pays to North Korea's new leader, Kim Jong-un, and his wife, and how little attention gets paid to the people in the camps. In South Korea, he and some friends started an Internet talk show designed to tell the world what's really going on in the North. As for that taste of freedom he risked his life for, he can eat all the broiled chicken he wants now. 
but admits it hasn't given him the satisfaction he'd hoped for. When I eat something good, when I laugh with my friends, or, you know, when I make some money, I'm excited. But that's only momentary. And right afterwards, I start worrying again. You worry about what now? What I worry about now is all those people in the prison camps. Children are still being born there, and somebody is probably being executed. And you think about, do you think about that a lot? Yeah. It's a lot to take in there. Now I've seen this, I don't know, eight or nine times. And every time you see it, it, it brings up different thoughts and, you know, wow, it's a lot to take in there. So as a Christ follower, 1 Peter 3, always be ready to give the reason for the hope that's in you. You're sitting across the table from this guy. And it's your opportunity to share about the hope that's within you, the hope that he never felt for at least 23 years of absolute despair. What are you going to say to him? I, you know, I think for some of us, we're, we're tempted to go after kind of the, the big pieces of the story, and we're just going to get lost in the weeds. I mean, if, if you want to start talking about political prisoners, if you want to start talking about the evils in North Korea, if you want to start going down all that road, you're, ju- you're just going to kind of get lost in the mess, which is a lot of times what happens to us when we're talking to someone who's in a state of real despair. This fellow said a couple things that were incredibly spiritual. Notice he only used the word God once, and heaven only came up once. But he said some things here that were incredibly spiritual. Think, for example, what did he want more than anything else? He wanted a full stomach. He wanted food. He wanted to eat. He thought that would bring him the deepest form of satisfaction that he could ever have. He longed for food so much that he was willing to rat out his family. He longed to be full. That's what he said. I did it because I longed to be full. So he gets outside, and he can eat anything he wants. And what does he say after all of that? It doesn't always bring the satisfaction that I hoped for. Can you imagine that? All of his life, he just wanted one day of his life that his stomach didn't grumble. And when it finally finally, finally was full, he said, that isn't quite it yet. Now think about it when we're talking to our friends. How many people are just going after the wrong answer? They, they, have, a, they have a deep desire. They have something that they say, if this would happen, if this would change, if this were different, I would be completely satisfied. And then it lands in their lap and they go, yeah, not so much. Only Jesus can provide the fullness that person is longing for. You you go to John 10. John 10, where, where Jesus says quite clearly, it's the thief who comes to steal and kill and destroy. The thief in this case is not only the North Korean prison guard. The thief is Satan himself who's trying to rob him of fullness. But what does Jesus say? I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. Rather than getting in on all the details of the story and the good, bad, and ugly of it, here's the reality. He was longing for something. And when he finally got it, that didn't satisfy either. But we 
can tell him the reason for the hope that we have within ourselves because Jesus does provide that fullness and that satisfaction. I love the words of St. Augustine. He says, God, you have made us for yourself. That's why he designed us. He designed us for him. And our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. No matter what a person is confronting, they will never experience true rest. They will never experience true fullness and true satisfaction until it's finally found in Jesus. And that's what we do as Christ followers. We help a person to see in their story where their lack of satisfaction can be brought to fullness. But there's another beautiful spiritual element of this, of this story. When... Um, when the two are talking about this former prisoner and they're talking about what he did and while he was in the camp, the comment is made, he said, he believed the rules of the camp like gospel. What an ironic word to use. He believed the rules of the camp like gospel. And the interviewer said, well, he had no, he had no compass. And, and the other fellow says, well, yes, he had a compass. His compass was the rules of the camp. He paints for us an extreme of the reality that happens in so many people's lives. Here's a guy who only understood the world from the standpoint of his prison camp. He He had no idea if there was an outside world and what that outside world was. He just figured the entire globe was one big prison camp. He had no idea what was on the outside until what? Until somebody from the outside came in. Until somebody from the outside, someone who had been on the outside, could come and tell him what life was like on the outside. And that's our role as storytellers and story listeners. We get the chance to tell somebody what real life is all about because all they understand are the rules of their camp. All they understand are are the lies that they've believed all of their lives. And we have the chance to describe to them a world that exists in Christ that they cannot know of otherwise. And the spiritual knowledge just gets even more beautiful when you think of the way he escaped. And the fact that he escaped with this fellow who had been on the outside and the guy on the outside lays his life down on the barbed wire so that he can crawl over and finally experience freedom. Are we willing to lay our life down on the barbed wire so that the person who is trapped can finally experience freedom in Christ? I'm sure CBS never intended for this to be given as a gospel presentation. And I'm telling you what, there aren't too many more beautiful gospel presentations than the one that we just witnessed. Somebody was willing to lay down their life so that you could experience a reality that's quite different than the one that exists in your head. Someone laid down their life. Someone came from the outside to say, this isn't the way it really is in reality. And Jesus helped us to understand that. And he's now given us the opportunity to listen to other people's stories. And when we hear their story, to help them to interpret that story from the standpoint of reality, of fullness of life in Christ. But here's the problem. For a lot of us, I'm not really sure we're totally sold on the story yet. I mean, honestly, if you had the chance to talk to this fellow, and I'm simplifying it, would you look at him and say, well, the answer to your problems is Jesus. 
I mean, we'd be looking for something more complex, more sophisticated, more, you know, something out there. When in fact, the only thing that will ever bring him true satisfaction is a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Do we as Christ followers, when we're looking at somebody who has lived through extreme pain, they're really suffering in their life for whatever reason, do we look at them and find ourselves saying, 1 Peter 3, I know why I have hope. And I want to share it with you too. I don't know that we always believe in the story. I don't know we always believe in the presence of God in our stories. I don't know that we always believe that we truly do have the solution to all of the world's problems. And God's asking, when are my people going to embrace it? When are my people going to embrace that this really is the answer, that Jesus really is the answer to the empty stomach, that Jesus really is the answer to that lack of satisfaction that that person is experiencing in their life? And so this morning, I guess I I call on all of us to embrace once again these words. You've made us for ourselves, and our hearts are feeling restlessness till they find their rest in you. Do we believe that the only place a person can find rest and true satisfaction is Jesus? Do we really believe that? Or do we just do church? Are we just religious? Or do we really believe that Christ intersects with a person's deepest point of pain and wants to pull them out of the prison of their despair and bring them a full and rich life. Let's talk to Jesus right now. Father God in heaven, the fact is you have, you have handed us the answer. You have handed us the answer. And as we listen to other people's stories, we tend to want to apply all kinds of other solutions. We get lost in the weeds when in fact... We hold the solution in our hands. They need a relationship with you, God, through Jesus Christ. I pray that we would believe much more strongly in the solution, that we would not find ourselves bunny trailing on things that really don't matter, but that we'd realize we are the one set of people in this world who do truly have the answer to the world's problems. And that we would start with boldness and gentleness and compassion, sharing that with people who find themselves in a prison of their own despair while they try to figure out their story and the fact of their stories with a broken compass. You were on the outside and you came into our world to show us there's a different reality. You laid down your life so that we could walk across your back to freedom. And you give us the privilege now of doing that with other people as well. Make us willing in this year and the years to come to lay down our lives so that others might experience freedom in you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'd like you to join me by standing and we're going to sing a song called Lead Me to the Cross. A commitment right now to say, God, bring us to yourself. Let's let's sing.
Before we can ever lead anybody else to hope, God, we need to be led there ourselves. We need to come back to a place of, of embracing the absolute foundation of our faith, that the cross is the only answer to every human condition. We need to come back to a place of embracing the gospel of Jesus Christ in a new and fresh and real way. That we realize when somebody is telling us their story and while we, while we empathize with them in their pain and we hear the hurt and the heartbreak they've gone through, there is only one answer that will satisfy them. There is only one person who will ever be able to bring the solution they're looking for and his name is Jesus. God, I pray that we would come to a place of embracing once again that solution rather than looking at all the different compasses that this world hands us and tells us this will work and that will work and the other thing will work. God, I pray that we'd realize we've been holding the right compass all along and that we believe in it and that we believe in you and that we would bring hope to others just like it's been brought to us. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. Our servers are coming to receive the offering while they do. Uh, I do want to remind you that we're in that season of, of registering for groups. It gives you the opportunity to interact 
with friends on a more personal level, we don't get to do a lot of personal interaction while we're sitting in a service. For the most part, you sit there in a chair, you stare up front, you hear someone talk, or you sing along. But for the most part, you know, we don't break down and have 50 minutes of just being able to talk and get to know each other. The fact is, you may have been sitting next to somebody for the last six months, and you still don't even know their first name, let alone their last name. Groups give you the opportunity to start to get to know some names. And not only that, they start to get to uh, give you the opportunity to start to grow through interaction in personal relationships. Because it's one thing for us to uh, talk about the gospel. It's another thing for us to be able to, you know what would have been a great group today? To just play that video and talk about it for 45 minutes. To be able to just talk about what that drew out in you. And what the spiritual principles are that you learn from that. That's where growth happens for us when we get in that context of relationship. So we have a whole bunch of opportunities. Some of them only last for a day. We have a a, a day that we're doing for guys and another for women that is kind of a a home retreat. We're just spending the day together with a bunch of Southfielders getting to know God and each other better. We have some that are a little bit more short-term, some that that have an Advent or a a Lenten focus. Uh, We have some some sports opportunities, playing basketball. Boot camp got going yesterday and a nice mild start. Bob left us believing that we're all in good shape. You know, it was, we're going along, we're like, yeah, this is great. And, and, and we're all going, but if you've been here before, you know week three is coming and it's going to get worse. So my encouragement is jump in now while it feels easy because week three is coming, but you'll feel great by the time this is done. Gives us a chance to have some fun together. And here's the part that's cool. I don't know if you've ever belonged to a gym. Uh, my tendency to re- resist gym is simple. I give everybody else reason for optimism and hope. They look at me and go, wow, I'm a lot better than that. So, you know, typically you don't want to go into a gym and it's a hard body convention. Believe me, our group, we're just a bunch of schlumps and dumps trying to get in shape. You will feel right at home. So come be a part of that and just a lot of different opportunities, again, for you to be able to to, uh, experience some growth, experience some relationships. It's a huge piece of the way we believe growth happens. So try one. Get online when you get home, southfieldchurch.com, sign up for a group, and get on out, start enjoying those relationships together. So uh, later today, I'll, I'll, post this, uh, I'll post this video as well. And I want to encourage you to just go back and watch it several times. Watch it several times. Really, really let that start to sink in. And again, as you're watching it, keep coming back with that verse, I have the hope within me. How would I share that with a person like this? Allow God to really speak to you this week and, and, and to cause you to get an infectious love once again with the gospel of Jesus Christ and the fact that the cross matters. The cross is the only thing that will make a difference in people's pain in the middle of their story. Let's stand together and we're going to sing as we close.
Amen. Well, you guys have a great day, great Sunday. Enjoy it, and we'll see you next week.